While you're listening, go to arcpodnet.com slash members and support our efforts. Let's get to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 185. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my guest co-host, Ed Gonzalez-Tennant. Today we talk about his efforts to represent an historic cemetery virtually. Also, my mic didn't pick up for the entire episode, so apologies for that and my headphone mic quality, and I'll be looking for a new job, but not as a podcast engineer. Let's get to it. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Archaeotech Podcast. Paul is still gallivanting around Saudi Arabia. He's uh, actually, there was a mix up in his airline tickets and he was almost coming back in like October, but luckily he's not. <laughs> he's coming back in a couple of weeks. So I think he'll be on the next recording. We'll see. But either way, today we have back on as our special guest host, Ed gonzalez Tennant. Ed, how's it going? Great. How are you doing? Good, good. Yeah, we're up in uh, we're up in Calgary, Canada right now. We, we came up here just because it fit with our schedule. We like Canada. thought it'd be cooler in the United States. And then, you know, we're at the tail end of like a heat wave in British Columbia and Alberta, which is crazy. But the heat wave only hit like low 90s. So that's good. Not like some parts of the United States, which are way worse. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Greetings from the Rio Grande Valley, where it is literally 100 degrees right now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, that's no good for anybody. Speaking of, well, not really speaking of, but, you know, hot things, virtual stuff, right? In fact, I just saw, and and we haven't watched it yet. We're just like trolling HBO Max last night, just seeing what else out there was new. And there's there's a movie called, uh, it's a documentary actually called We Met in Virtual Reality. And it just looking at the trailer, you know, it's some people who are definitely a little bit extra when it comes to that stuff. And and some of them are like, you know, trying to maintain long-term relationships. Some of them are finding new relationships. It was all about virtual relationships because it's called we met in virtual reality. But the point is some of the people in there are spending like every waking moment that they possibly can in virtual reality. They're living their lives there. They're teaching classes there. They're doing things. So virtual reality is a, is a thing that obviously it's, it's a niche t- thing right now for a lot of people. It's not a common part of people's everyday lives. When they think about visiting a place, they think about visiting it in reality. You know, you might look at some pictures first, you might look at Instagram, you might look at something like that to kind of prep yourself, but it's always, let's go there. But to be honest, that's not always great for archaeology. It's not always great for preservation. And it's not always great for carbon footprints. You know, you got to fly somewhere, you got to drive somewhere. There's crowds of people. We've been in Banff National Park for the last week. And my God, the number of people that are just up there. there there's a lake that you can go watch the sunrise over near Lake Louise. But you have to literally get in the parking lot at three o'clock in the morning because by three thirty, four o'clock, it's full and they close it because people are waiting for the sun to come up. Yeah, it's nuts. It's absolutely nuts. So along those lines, let's talk about creating a virtual cemetery. And, and why are we why are we talking about this? Ed? <laughs> so I, I also want to say I did actually see that same documentary you're talking about at the what was it? The uh, some hotel I was staying at last week in Rosenberg, Texas, outside of Houston. Nice. So anybody who's like listening to this podcast and had experience with Second Life, oh, this yeah. documentary is about VR chat. But it feels like in some ways, 10 years ago, watching a documentary about Second Life or reading right coming of age in Second Life. So 
I thought it was well, pretty cool. You know, I mean, to, to use the, the language of the Utes today, it was a bit cringe in places, but I also felt a lot of sincerity on the part of people they were, were engaging with. And I thought that was really sure. cool. There is actually, I watched this a few years ago. I don't know exactly when it came out, but I know I saw it probably two, three years ago at the very least, a documentary about Second Life. It was literally the same thing as this, except it was Second Life. And it was focused around a few people that developed a relationship and actually potentially even got married in Second Life. And then there was a little bit of aftermath too, when some of these people finally met in real life and you know, maybe it didn't quite hold up or, you know, whatever. And and I think in one case, they were actually in the same house, but on different computers at other ends of the house and still like interacting in Second Life because that's just what they knew <laughs> once they met wow. once they met in real life, IRL, so to speak. So, you know, uh, well, but one I the, mean, yeah, any, you know, those of us in long term relationships know <laughs> they they require compromise. And if that compromise is requiring a digital intermediary for interaction, then you make that compromise, I guess. I'll tell you what, man, I live in a 300 square foot house on wheels with an engine. So <laughs> my wife and I can totally relate. Yeah. She, she says that the only thing that saves our marriage is we both have noise canceling headphones. <laughs> so that's, She's got them on right now. I'm like watching her typing away on her computer in the living room. She has no idea I'm talking about her. So anyway, <laughs> You know, one of these things these virtual environments do require, though, which is why we brought up the virtual cemetery. One of the things I did like about Second Life, I haven't logged in there in a really long time, but one of the things I did like about looking around in there is people had created virtual representations of real things in the world. Crazy things like this, you know, you could walk around the Enterprise, the Starship Enterprise mm -hmm. from Star Trek, right? But then also stuff like Pompeii and mm -hmm. an archaeological excavation and, you know, certain you know, certain ger generic things like that, but then certain real things that people have created that you can go experience. That wasn't very good. And that's no discredit to them. It's just the, the medium wasn't very good. wasn't very realistic, uh, but it's getting a lot better with modern VR. I've got an Oculus Quest 2 sitting right next to me and I use it almost every day for either workout or my home office setup. And I don't really use it for VR chat or anything else like that, except I do play golf with one of my colleagues occasionally. And we talk about work on a virtual golf course, which is kind of fun. But, uh, but aside from that, we need to be able to recreate things in a more realistic way in VR. And I think that's what we're going to really focus on today. I'm going to use or talk about cemeteries, particularly the cemetery in Rosewood, Florida, where I've done a lot of my own research, in part because, you know, these are places and you know, whether it's VR chat, Second Life or a whole host of I don't know, uh, spaces or, or, mm -hmm. or ecosystems where people are delivering virtual content. You know, one of the things that is difficult for a lot of places, particularly those of us who are archaeologists, I think there's kind of two or even twin uh, complications for visiting a site, right? If it's a national park and everybody comes there, you've already talked about the difficulties that we're facing now post-COVID. They're being sort of overwhelmed, by particularly, I guess, during tourist season. But, you know, I, I've heard that about a lot of parks. Mm -hmm. But what about places where you can't visit? Either it's privately owned or it doesn't exist like anthropologists or archaeologists imagined it or, or know it existed in the past. And so that's one of the things that, you know, bringing for me, bringing together different technologies, remote sensing, uh, geophysics and 3D and virtual technologies to reconstruct either extant 
or ruined sites in a way that's immersive, but also intuitively so. Uh, mm-hmm. That's what I'm really interested in doing. I, you know, I'm doing it with cemeteries. You know, clearly the one in Rosewood, for those of you who, who may not know, it's privately owned. And while Florida, mm-hmm. you know, the state of Florida has, you know, statutes about, you know, sort of guaranteeing descendants a right to visit those graves. You know, this is clearly an important site, particularly now what it's August of 2022. We're just literally a few months out from the 100th anniversary of the destruction of that community. This is going to be a site that is going to become, if I had to predict it, this is going to be a site that everybody will be talking about in the coming months. Really? And you know, how do we how do we visit that? You know, it's privately owned. The landowner has always worked with direct descendants to grant them access. But, you know, Mm -hmm. the story of Rosewood is much larger and many communities, you know, it resonates not just with direct descendants, but African-Americans in general. And of course, is is a part of the really the fabric of our nation's history in, in a really bad and ugly way. But, you know, we don't want to turn away from that. So how do we make these places accessible? How do we make these places, you know, that are part of these sorts of conversations that we need to be having? How can we make them accessible if they don't exist or access to them is controlled? And I think most archaeologists will have worked on a site where this set of concerns is present. Mm -hmm. And so... I, I don't think we'll necessarily want to talk about, you know, how did you get access to the property? And so, you know, I, it was a long-term process. Anybody who does collaborative or engaged archaeology knows it can take years to to gain access to something. And that's the case here. Mm-hmm. But I think what's what's really interesting is the ability of various digital 3D VR tools to combine data sets like photogrammetric models of headstones or tombstones with LIDAR and drone captured photogrammetry. So, you know, uh, other kinds of 3D surfaces representing the ground of the site, bringing those together and delivering that plus ground penetrating radar, field mapping with the total station, right? This sort of like beautiful mix of traditional and emergent technologies within archaeology. And then delivering it in a way that basically anybody with a cell phone, a computer, mm-hmm. or a set of VR goggles can access the site, which is, you know, in this case, like many archaeological sites, is controlled. Access is controlled right. to that site. So we're going to take a break here in a second. But when we come back, I want to talk about some of the some of the other benefits. We kind of alluded to it about you know virtual reality. And then we'll talk about the cemetery itself and a little bit about how you go about deciding what kind of data and in what order, what, what way you need to collect that for the platforms you're going to put this on. So we'll do that on the other side of the break. Back in a minute. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. (laughs) 
Are you listening to this podcast and thinking you'd like to start your own podcast and don't know where to start? Well, Chris Webster, that's me. I'm founder of the APN and I started podcasting back in 2011. You can learn from my years of experience and you can do it at your own pace. Head over to propodcastnow.com and click the learn to podcast image. My six to eight hour self-guided course will take you from show inception to your first episode and you'll learn the tools you need to keep it all going and prevent pod fading. That's a real term. You can have access to the materials for as long as you want. And if you stay in for three months, at least you'll have lifetime access to the graduates Slack team. So you can talk to other people that have taken the course and are managing their own podcasts. Again, head over to propodcastnow.com and click learn to podcast. Welcome back to episode 185 of the Archaeotech podcast. And I'm talking with Ed Gonzalez-Tennant about creating a virtual cemetery. And, you know, one of the things you you alluded to in the end of the last segment there is one of the reasons why, you know, we would do something like this, not only for archaeologists to help visualize what's going on, right, but also members of the public can, can visit this kind of thing because you don't want them, you know, tromping around these necessarily any archaeological site for that matter. I think another aspect of this is also, and maybe with the cemetery, maybe not, but definitely other archaeological sites I can imagine where it is more ruins, it's more ephemeral in what you're actually finding. Our imaginations are full of inaccuracies and bias. (laughs) So we might be thinking, well, based on the available evidence, this is what I picture this thing looks like. And, you know, the more experience you have, the more accurate that picture may be. But the ability to articulate those thoughts and data into something in a virtual reality environment that you can literally step into in VR and then walk around and look, you can, you can actually test assumptions and say, this actually doesn't make any sense. Like no, no culture or group in their right mind would have set something up this way. That doesn't mean they didn't do it, but it might, (laughs) it might help you test out those kinds of assumptions. So I I think from a a pure research standpoint, not just public engagement, but a pure research standpoint, it might be helpful to start thinking virtual reality. And it would be great if we had easier tools to be able to, you know, create these environments, but, you know, an easier way to create these environments so we can just add that to our toolkit for understanding and how that works. And then if it all works out, you know, open it up to uh, members of the public, put it on some sort of virtual world, so to speak, and uh, let other people visit it. So along those lines, you mentioned some of the tools you were using to sort of create this this cemetery in a virtual way. How did you decide to use what you're using? Are you starting with a virtual endpoint and you know what it takes to create that? Do you have something in mind, a, a platform or a software or something like that, and you know what that requires and you're kind of reverse engineering it from there in order to provide the data for that? Or how does that work? So I think where I'm at now is is there, right? Like moving forward, new projects, new sites, I have this endpoint in mind and I know, I know sort of the steps that I would take to arrive there. But again, talking about the virtual Rosewood Cemetery, work has been going on there since 2012, 2013. And initially, Mm -hmm. it was very, very traditional work. Let's map the site. Let's dream about doing ground-penetrating radar survey to locate unmarked burials. Let's see what the documentary record has. And so for the most part, you know, the, the research there began like a lot of archaeological projects did. Over time, new concerns emerged for me, as well as, you know, a, a growing experience or, or familiarity with different digital and virtual technologies that I, I started to imagine, okay, so 
you know, as archaeologists, we were able to map things. And, you know, and this is a historic cemetery in the southern U.S. You know, it's a right. sandy area. There are depressions. You know, people who visited historic graveyards know what depressions that are historic graves but unmarked look like, right? So an experienced researcher, you know, whether that means like professional or academic or, you know, even avocational, a, a researcher knows what they're looking at. Right. But, you know, a lot of people would arrive at a site like this where maybe there's only three or four marked graves. The documentary record records 40 something graves like mm -hmm. death certificates where, you know, how as an archaeologist, I can start to reconcile that through the results of a ground penetrating radar survey, field mapping of depressions, the marked. you know, I can bring these different data sets together as an quote unquote expert how would I start to communicate that to the public, you know, and not, not in a way where I assume they know less, but in a way that I just understand they've had less experience working in these sorts <laughs> of settings. And that's what really, you know, in the last few years sort of motivated me to start thinking, well, how would I combine, you know, these different forms of archaeological data that archaeologists, right, we work with sort of natively after, after a time. You know, we, we understand how to combine field mapping data and even, you know, LIDAR data of the site and the results of yeah. a ground penetrating radar survey. How would I create something the public would not just find sort of intuitive, but also actually have an interest in exploring? And so I mm -hmm. landed on taking a very traditional set of archaeological data and kind of pushing it through a, a much more digital and virtual workflow with the idea of, hey, there are these tools, you know, sites like uh, Sketchfab, where I can actually deliver really powerful, large, right, virtual data sets that users can then approach mm. and access on their phones, their computers, their goggles, whatever, and it'll deliver sort of natively to those different formats. So whether you have a two, you know, a, a 2D screen, whether that's your phone or your computer monitor, delivering 3D content, or you have something fully immersive like a, a pair of VR goggles. You know, the, the great thing about Sketchfab is when you upload your virtual content, your 3D models, it will automatically deliver that 3D data in mm. any of those formats. Nice. You know, for me, I, I, I have a, a relatively modest cost annually to to have the you know the the, the Sketchfab membership, but yeah. for the user it's absolutely free. There's no cost to the user, and right. so I started working between you know what I think is a very traditional archaeological project in a in a historic cemetery mm -hmm. and moving it into this you know I, I guess now I would say emergent or emerged. I I, I find it hard to say like. Oh, yeah, you know, 3D technologies are emerging technology. I mean, they're around. We know about them, right? Um, you know, kind of push that traditional data. Like, how do I take traditional archaeological data, you know, in a GIS and elsewhere and bring it into a 3D model that I can then make interactive? And so, you know, Sketchfab offers the delivery solution. Right. We all know how to produce that traditional archaeological data. What was really the sort of exploration point was how do I combine this data 
into a 3D data set that I could then push into Sketchfab. Okay. And Sketchfab would show you really a lot of times what you see in Sketchfab is sometimes, especially of archaeological sites, is what the site looks like now, right? You're like mm-hmm. you're, you're taking these LIDAR data, photogrammetric data, all this stuff and, and, and putting this together and, and giving a picture of what it looks now. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on if this were brought into a full virtual reality goggles environment in some sort of universe that exists in virtual reality, right? Uh, not something like Sketchfab where you would basically look one off at different things, but maybe actually applied to a, you know, to some sort of a landscape. Do you think you would want to represent the cemetery as it is now, given that a lot of historic cemeteries definitely have some degradation and some maintenance issues and some, some restoration issues, or would you want to show it fully restored? Is there ethical concerns around, I guess, altering its natural decay, so to speak? You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the the I guess the the tact I took was kind of a mix of those. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not guessing at what headstones that might have been there look like. I think we, sure. we certainly in this site had a lot of ephemeral like wooden headstones and so forth. Like, I think this is a really important question, and I don't think that archaeologists necessarily, well, most archaeologists who are interested in these things are not taking the time to think about this. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think conversations with descendants or other stakeholder communities is important in that regard. Like, what value would you get from this? And I guess if the goal is to create, like with the virtual Rosewood Cemetery, there's no point in really recreating how it looks now. There's only one visible headstone. (laughs) It's overrun by various vegetation. Mm -hmm. The maintenance of the site probably could, I don't know, improve. Uh, But, you know, this is in the middle of nowhere. The person who owns it doesn't live on the property. They live some distance away from it. You know, I mean, there are legitimate reasons why it's in the state it's in. Mm hmm. I think each site would be different. You know, a site that's ruined today showing the ruined state, I think could have value, Mm -hmm. right? Obviously showing the present condition of a site is much easier, right? You can do laser scanning or photogrammetry or whatever done. There's, there's not a lot of editing. There's very little conjecture, if any involved. And so approaching a site in that way is much easier. If you want to represent a site as it, existed, you have to develop a whole different toolkit, a whole different set of skills, because at that point, you're modeling 3D objects. They may be based on photographs, architectural drawings, or what have you, but they're not easily recordable with technologies today. You have to take a step into a whole different set of skills and a whole different sort of conjectural landscape. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, let's take our final break and then come back and and certainly not wrap up this discussion, but we'll continue it (laughs) because there's a lot to talk about. But we'll do that on the other side of the break. Back in a minute. 
What do you use for appointment and task scheduling? I used to constantly move things around in my calendar that were just tasks I needed to do in favor of meetings. Now I let an intelligent AI do that with Motion. In Motion, all I have to do is create tasks with a soft or hard deadline, state how long I think it will take, and whether it can be broken up, and Motion does the rest. It puts the task where it's a best fit for me getting it done by the deadline. The scheduler then puts appointments with people wherever they schedule and moves the tasks around them. Support the APN with a little kickback if you sign up and try Motion for free at www.arcpodnet.com motion. That's arcpodnet.com motion. Did you know we have lots of great shows on the Archaeology Podcast Network? Head over to arcpodnet.com and you can see all the shows that are currently producing podcasts. Scroll down a bit more and you'll see some great shows from the past that still have great content. Search for your favorite shows on your podcasting app or listen right on the page at arcpodnet.com. Welcome back to the final segment of episode 185 of the Architect Podcast. And we're talking about creating a virtual cemetery. So we've, t- we've talked about you know, some of the techniques you've used and, and some of the things you've done so far, what remains to be done? And I think along the lines of that question is, what could you do if money and time were no object? <laughs> like, what would you like? <laughs> you know, that's always a fun question to ask because you never know. You never know what's going to come down the line. But uh, so so what what's left that, that you can actually do right now in, in order to, to really, I guess, finish out this project from the standpoint of, you know, where you started? And then we'll talk about where you would go you know, given the golden check? Well, I think at this point, you know, you know, we have a finished or I have a finished 3D virtual immersive interactive model of the Rosewood Cemetery. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of ways, I think we've we've done what we can do at that site. I mean, now, okay. you know, when I say that, it's it's a very small site, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're totaling a few dozen burials, most of which mm-hmm. are unmarked revealed uh, through ground penetrating radar, the number of visible graves, marked graves and GPR anomalies roughly corresponds to the uh, Florida certificates of death that we can find in the archives. You know, we have a good correspondence between these documentary and archaeological data, which as a historical archaeologist, I love that, right? That's that correspondence is, is beautiful in a lot of ways. So in regards with with that project, I feel like 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 I've sort of hit what I needed to. You, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know what the future of access to that property looks like. Will it you know be converted into some sort of, of public lands? Will it be purchased by the state? Will it be purchased by a nonprofit? You know, will the the landowner open it? I don't know, and I can't speak for any of the parties that might be involved in that. Yeah. But I think you know what's what's interesting is even if that would happen. And I think this is where it gets into sort of the like golden ticket question. Even if that were to happen, the immediate area that I'm reconstructing with that is a very small area, right? It's a few Mm -hmm. tens of meters by a few tens of meters, you know? And so in that respect, it's, it's kind of, I don't want to say it's easy, right? There's, there's all of these different skills that be brought into, you know, into conversation, but it's, it's not a huge space. It's not a huge number of, of 3D models. In fact, the vegetation is really the, the the most costly part, trying to represent what the area around the graves looks like in terms sure. of trees and, and shrubs and so forth. So, you know, in terms of like a learning tool, 
and a finished mm-hmm. product. I feel pretty good about where we're at with this. I think, you know, <laughs> what I need to do, quite frankly, as like a academic is do some more writing up about this whole process. I, I think that that honestly is kind of the missing piece because I think there are a lot of people working in cemeteries who face these challenges, particularly small cemeteries, private mm-hmm. cemeteries, family cemeteries. You know, in my my new position at the uh, University of Texas Rio Grande Valley, there's a there's a big push in the surrounding areas and counties to kind of create a large database of who's buried where. Mm. You've got lots of families, lots of communities who are like, I know I have a connection to this area. You know, find a grave is great, but it, it, it's not easy necessarily to find you know, relatives. And even if it is, I don't know what it looks like or, you know, so I think there's a lot of sort of local stories that can be told by these things. I think the interactivity, and this is where I I think maybe we can like shift into that second question, like embedding additional information, whether that's like oral histories or historic photographs, experimenting with the ways that we would incorporate these other data into a virtual world, into a virtual space, into an interactive and immersive space. Uh, I think that's that's the last sort of step to move into. But of course, you know, anybody who works with archaeology and oral history and the intersection of those two things knows that these are time intensive and often even, you know, sort of resource intensive things to do. And I think there are some models out there. You know, when, you know, I've even written about this when maybe you move into a certain area or click on a certain, I don't know, model, click on a certain yeah. uh, headstone. Maybe that activates a snippet of somebody's oral history about that individual. Right. I mean, there's mm-hmm. so many of these. Oh, yeah. These possibilities that could take place. And we're talking virtual, but obviously you could shift that into an augmented or mixed reality application as well. So. The goal of creating a virtual Rosewood Cemetery has been met. However, there can be so much more than a virtual X site, I think. And, you know, I think what's really exciting right now, and I don't want to jump into the like, you have a bucket of money. What can you do? But, you know, I think what's really exciting now is bucket of money or not. uh, And I do want to talk about that. But bucket of money or not. There are so many open source tools and, you know, computational power of our cell phones and our laptops is is such today that I think a lot of these things are, if they're not currently within reach, they're so tantalizingly close. And I think, you know, we've talked the last couple of weeks about this like maker mindset. I mean, I think what's really exciting for students and archaeologists and heritage professionals in, in general is how do I kind of kit bash my own approach, my own selection of software, my own selection of hardware, my own selection of delivery options? How do I bring that together to serve, you know, my interest at this site or the community's interest at that site and, and so forth? Right. And it's interesting you you mentioned, you know, being able to click on some of the some of the headstones and, and, you know, maybe see some information about the the people's lives that are buried there. And I was thinking from a virtual reality, you know, immersive standpoint, almost so a very similar thing. I actually wrote this down as a note during the last segment. I was like, man, it'd be super cool to almost view the headstones and the graves as a door. And you literally like step into whatever world this person lived in. And it would be 
some of it would be from historical records just of what we know you know where the people lived because there, there might not be a lot of information about each person that was buried there but you know what we do have we could include and what we don't know we could you know we could estimate based on what we just what we know of that time period but you know another question that's kind of related to all this is if we you know, thinking way into the future, because there's going to be long-term repercussions of these virtual representations, right? And one of the things I'm thinking of that might not be too far as far into the future as we think it as we think it is, like possibly within our lifetimes. You know, you got like a Ready Player One scenario where people are living their lives in virtual reality, and and we have archaeological sites represented as accurately as we possibly could within these virtual worlds, right? What then happens to the real one? And, and, and in a really weird ethical question, does it matter? Because if preservation and education is the key, if it's preserved and people are learning about it in an online environment and that's where they're spending most of their time, what is the ethical consideration around the physical one that remains? You know, should we bulldoze it to put up more server farms for people to be in, you know, <laughs> virtual reality <laughs> or or like what, like what happens to it you know what i mean when nobody's paying attention don't worry don't worry we're you know we're putting up another amazon cloud farm <laughs> but we've scanned stonehenge at a one-to-one -one scale so you'll be able to visit it anytime the druids can virtually manifest themselves in in <laughs> vr chat i mean that obviously that's a fascinating question right like yeah i don't have a definite answer. I mean, I understand any archaeologist, particularly those of us or those of you who have worked. I mean, I have, and I know a lot of listeners have worked or do work in cultural resource management, contract archaeology, federal agencies, state agencies, whatever that means for you personally or locally. And there's, you know, that constant balancing act, which can shift very quickly into triage from development. I mean, I think, you know, What's what's cool about digital and virtual technologies is it's sort of it's it's an extension of what archaeology, particularly salvage archaeology, right, has always been. Mm -hmm. Get the best and largest amount of data in really as 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 quick uh, a way as possible to preserve that information. Well, what if our tools, our methodologies, and I think that's really it. I think this is less about. I mean, sure, there will be a time. I remember this in my. Uh, master's defense at Michigan Tech, right? You know, I have a master's uh, in industrial archaeology and it's a great school, great program, great folks there. And I was sort of, you know, talking about in the defense, which my thesis was very GIS oriented and, and remote sensing. And I'm like, oh, you know, at some point we'll have a little black box. We'll take it out to a site, we'll set it down and it'll basically record everything. You won't even have to excavate. Mm -hmm. And certainly I think for a lot of us who enjoy the act of, of excavation, the act of field work, the camaraderie that comes along with that. Also the, the, like the just natural collective think, you know, Hey, we found this, let's all think about what this means. I think that's a really powerful way to explore the past and history and heritage. I'd hate to see yeah. that go away. But on the other hand, you know, what happens when we can do a complete recording whatever that means i mean molecular level yeah. you know component analysis what what because you know i don't know if that'll happen in our lifetime i think of like star trek scanners you're right like oh, yeah. from orbit the enterprise oh there's intelligent life here whatever that means <laughs> ever we define that which obviously they got schooled on that lesson more than once 
<laughs> but, you know, so like, yeah, getting back to the question, I think as archaeologists and heritage professionals, our goal is to produce the sort of record that could serve a, you know, ready player one uh, sort of scenario. Like, look, mm -hmm. this is lost, but we know enough that we can reconstruct it. And now we have the technologies that we can, you know, make it available to people. I, I've often thought of I, there's a part of me that wants to be like a science fiction author. Right. And yeah. I've often thought of a scenario where an archaeologist, an ethno-archaeologist uses the technologies that will be available probably within the decade, um, fully immersive environments, if not self-aware artificial intelligences, things that are basically indistinguishable from our perspective. And so what happens if we create, you know, a, a scenario, a, an island, perhaps we work in the Caribbean, like yeah. I have done, and we're interested in what would it be like to do an ethnography with the indigenous population that lived here a thousand years ago? And what right. if I can use archaeological and ethnographic data to basically generate a group of living individuals in a virtual system? And I can go mm -hmm. do ethnography as an archaeologist among them, like how are you living? How are you exploiting the environment and so forth? And how is this going to inform my future interpretations? But then, of course, what happens, you know, I, I feel like this is maybe the next step or two from your question. Like what happens then when we're like, OK, well, the simulation is done. I learned what I needed to do. But there's 500 possibly sentient indigenous people <laughs> okay. living in the simulation. Do right. I just turn that off? Do I have? So, I mean, maybe that's very far in the future. Maybe we never get to a point where we have to ask those questions. But I think asking, you know, those sorts of questions, it's just kind of a like an issue of scale. Like, do I protect mm -hmm. this one site? I can virtually reconstruct it perfectly. Oh. Who am I protecting it for? I mean, obviously, you know, I, I've I've sort of beaten around the bush on this, right? As an archaeologist, yeah, I want to protect all the sites. I don't want them to ever go away. But we also recognize that that's just not feasible. I mean, human humanity would have to stop, right? We just have to pause right. for, for that to be a, a, a reality. And that's not going to happen for better and for worse. So right. I have no answer. I think the, the best answer for those of us who consider ourselves digital heritage, digital archaeologists is do your best to document as much as possible. And, you know, the great thing about that sort of data is we can then access it later and reconstruct these places, which I think mm -hmm. is also cool because, right, people sort of present digital archaeology or, or, or virtual archaeology, right, as something brand new. But I think there's this core component to it, what we're talking about now, right? Like, let's reconstruct a site virtually so people can visit it. I think that that is sort of the the public or engaged archaeology extension of what archaeology as a science has always tried to do, preserve the mm -hmm. information. And now we just have a way to make that information accessible to a much, much larger audience, not just us and the people right. who pay for our publications. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Yeah, and that's, man, it's so many, so many questions because we are on the cusp of really a, a revolution in outreach right and interaction with things not just for the public but for scientists as well and you know when you were talking about 
you know, studying a, a virtual people. Yeah, I was thinking along the same lines of you know, taking all available data and putting it into, you know, I hate to say the the words invoking all the sci-fi craziness, but putting it into like an AI so the AI could infer back with what we know about other cultures and civilizations and what was found in this particular location and essentially build a people that were creating this. So then we can go look and, and see potentially how these things were done based on all the available evidence and other stuff that we know. But like you said, man, that, that is such a slippery slope because, you know, what happens to those quote unquote people, uh, especially if they gain some sort of sentience or something like that. We, we seem like we're talking way into the future in sci-fi, but this kind of thing like just happens, right? Like all this, at some point we're going to live in a world where sentient artificial life forms, whether they're computer or robotic or whatever, either way, it's the software where that doesn't exist. And then all of a sudden we're going to live in a world where it does exist. You know, so it's not it is not a thing that's part of our lives until it is. And once it is, it's going to be a game changer. <laughs> it's going to literally change everything about what we do. And uh, even even archaeology, something that some people would say is stuck in the past, will be impacted by this crazy future. So anyway, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think like a lot of these, you know, in, in a university setting, I, I arrive and I'm I'm working with whatever the GIS program is or department. Mm-hmm. And they're they're almost always surprised to see just how involved archaeology is with these technologies. I think it's going to be the same thing with any of these others, you know, yeah. even artificial reality. I mean, in some ways, we're just talking about simulation. And simulation mm-hmm. studies are exploding right now in archaeology. People are simulating yeah. all sorts of aspects of the past. So it's only a matter of time before, you know, agent-based modeling is, I guess, what I'm talking about. It's only a matter of time before we can, quote-unquote, program or, or, or create or generate very intelligent agents. You know, agents whose intelligence is so deep that maybe for, for those of us interacting with them, it starts to become indistinguishable from other people. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, the the Google engineer who swears they have a chatbot that is sentient now and lost right. uh, their job because of this. I mean, yeah, I, I don't think this is a question we're going to have to ponder much longer. I mean, yeah, maybe it's <laughs> years, maybe if it's in decades even. But, you know, as a species, this is a this is a question that is going to be answered for us relatively quickly. Or, you know, I think yeah. we disappear. But I, I'm obviously hopeful <laughs> that we, we, we don't disappear. And hopefully we treat AI or sentient uh, non-corporal intelligences with some semblance of respect obviously uh, the history of humanity shows that's exactly what we do <laughs> i i would almost judge an ai a sentient ai for not immediately destroying us i would almost judge them for that <laughs> so, you know it's well, like you're how intelligent are you really yeah. <laughs> right <laughs> Okay, you're clearly a product of human engineering. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. All right, Ed. Well, thanks a lot for this episode and the in the last couple. So this has been this has been really great. I don't know if we're going to need you for another one. We'll find out. I think, like I said, I think Paul might be on track to to be back for another recording. But who knows? We'll we'll keep you on tap just in case and and get some updates on what you're doing. Absolutely, I'm I'm happy to be here and always happy to drop by. Sounds good. All right. Well, thanks, Ed, and thanks, everybody else, and we'll see you in a couple weeks.
Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.arcpodnet.com slash Archaeotech. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at arcpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is license-free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. This is Chris Webster, founder of the APN and one of the chief editors. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. If you want to keep the conversation going and support us along the way, go to arcpodnet.com slash members. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. And thanks for listening.